0: Tonight we continue our story, On the Gull's Road, by Willa Cather. I shall never go to Sardinia, said Mrs. Ebling. It could not possibly be as beautiful as this. Neither shall I, I replied. As I was going down to dinner that evening, I was stopped by Lars Ebling, freshly brushed and scented, wearing a white uniform and polished and glistening as one of his own engines. He smiled at me with his own kind of geniality. You have been very kind to talk to my wife, he explained. It is very bad for her this trip that she speaks no English. I am indebted to you. I told him curtly that he was mistaken, but my acrimony made no impression upon his blandness. I felt that I should certainly strike, though if he stood there much longer, running his blue ring up and down his beard, I should probably have hated any man who was Mrs. Ebling's husband, but Ebling made me sick.' The next day I began my drawing of Mrs. Ebling. She seemed pleased and a little puzzled when I asked her to sit for me. It occurred to me that she had always been among dull people who took her looks as a matter of course, and that she was not at all sure that she was really beautiful. I can see now her quick, confused look of pleasure. I thought very little about the drawing then, except that the making of it gave me an opportunity to study her face to look as long as I pleased into her yellow eyes, at the noble lines of her mouth, at her splendid, vigorous hair. We have a yellow vine at home, I told her, that is very like your hair. It seems to be growing while one looks at it, and it twines and tangles about itself and throws out little tendrils in the wind. Has it any name? We it love vines. How little a thing could disconcert her. As for me, nothing disconcerted me. I awoke every morning with a sense of speed and joy. At night I loved to hear the swish of the water rushing by. As fast as the pistons could carry us, as fast as the water could bear us, we were going forward to something delightful, to something together. When Mrs. Ebling told me that she and her husband would be five days in the docks in New York, and then returned to Genoa, I was not disturbed, for I did not believe her. Came and went, and she sat still all day, watching the water. I heard an American lady say that she watched it like one who was going to die. But even that did not frighten me. I somehow felt that she had promised me to live. All those long blue days when I sat beside her, Talking about Finnmark and the sea, she must have known that I loved her. I sat with my hands idle on my knees and let the tide come up in me. It carried me so swiftly that, across the narrow space of deck between us, it must have swayed her, too, a little. I had no wish to disturb or distress her. If a little, very little of it, reached her, I was satisfied. If it drew her softly, but drew her, I wanted no more. Sometimes I could see that even the light pressure of my thoughts made her. One still evening, after a long talk, whispered to me, You must go and walk now, and don't think about me. She had been held too long and too closely in my thoughts, and she begged me to release her for a little while. I went out into the bow and put her far away, at the skyline with the faintest star, and thought her gently across the water. When I went back to her, she was asleep. But even in those first days I had my hours of misery. Why, for instance, should she have been born in Finnmark, and why should Lars Ebling have been her only door of escape? Why should she be silently taking leave of the world at the age when I was just beginning it, having had nothing? Nothing of whatever is worthwhile. She never talked about taking leave of things, and yet I sometimes felt that she was counting the sunsets. One yellow afternoon, when we were gliding between the shores of Spain and Africa, she spoke of her illness for the first time. I had got some magnolias at Gibraltar and She wore a bunch of them in her girdle, and the rest lay on her lap. She held the cool leaves against her cheek and fingered the white petals. I can never, she remarked, get enough of the flowers of the South. They make me breathless, just as they did it first. Because of them I should like to live a long while, almost forever. I leaned forward and looked at her. We could live almost forever if we had enough courage. It's of our lives that we d- If we had the courage to change it all, to run away to some blue coast, that over there, we could live on and on until we were dead. She smiled tolerantly and looked southward through half-shut eyes. I am afraid I should never have courage enough to go behind that mountain. At least... Look at it. It looks as if it hid horrible things. A sea mist, blown in from the Atlantic, began to mask the impassive African coast, and above the fog, the grey mountain peak took on the angry red of the sunset. It burned, sullen and threatening, until the dark land drew the night about her and settled back into the sea. We watched it sink while under us, Slowly but ever increasing, we felt the throb of the Atlantic come and go, the thrill of the vast, untamed waters of that lugubrious and passionate sea. I drew Mrs. Ebling's wraps about her and shut the magnolias under her cloak. When I left her, she slipped me one warm, white flower. From the Straits of Gibraltar we dropped into the abyss and by morning we were rolling in the trough of a sea that drew us down and held us deep, shaking us gently back and forth until the timbers creaked, and then shooting us out on the crest of a swelling mountain. The water was bright and blue, but so cold that the breath of it penetrated one's bones, as if the chill of the deep under fathoms of the sea were being loosed upon us. There were not more than a dozen people upon the deck that morning, and Mrs. Ebling was sheltered behind the stern, muffled in a sea-jacket, with drops of moisture upon her long lashes her hair. When a shower of icy spray beat back over the deck rail, she took it gleefully. After all, she insisted, this is my own kind of water, the kind I was born in. This is first cousin to the pole waters, and the sea we have left is only a kind of fairy tale. "'It's like the burnt-out volcanoes. Its day is over. "'This is the real sea now, where the doings of the world go on.' "'It is not our reality at any rate,' I answered. "'Oh, yes, it is. These are the waters that carry men to their work, "'and they will carry you to yours.' "'I sat down and watched her hair grow more alive and iridescent in the moisture.' "'You are pleased to take an attitude,' I complained. "'No, I don't love realities any more than another, "'but I admit them all the same. "'And who are you and I to define the realities? "'Our minds define them clearly enough. "'Yours and mine, everybody's. "'Those are the lines we never cross, "'though we flee from the equator to the pole. "'I have never really got out of Finnmark, of course.' I shall live and die in a fishing town in the Arctic Ocean, and the blue sea and the pink islands are as much a dream as they ever were. All the same, I shall continue to dream them. The Gulf Stream gave us warm blue days again, but pale like sad memories. The water had faded, and the thin, tepid sunshine made something tighter about one's heart. The stars watched us coldly and, seemed always to be asking me what I was going to do. The advancing line on the chart, which at first had been mere foolishness, began to mean something, and the wind from the west brought disturbing fears and forebodings. I slept lightly, and all day I was restless, except when I was with Mrs. Ebling. She quieted me as she did little Karen, and soothed me without saying anything as she had done that evening at Naples, when we watched the sunset. It seemed to me that every day her eyes grew more tender, and her lips more calm. A kind of fortitude seemed to be gathering about her mouth, and I dreaded it. Yet, in an involuntary glance, I put to her the question that tortured me. Her eyes always met mine steadily, deep and gentle and full of reassurance, that I had my word at last. Happened almost by accident. On the second night out from shore, there was the concert for the sailors' orphanage, and Mrs. Ebling dressed and went down to dinner for the first time, and sat on her husband's right. I was not the only one who was glad to see her. Even the women were pleased. She wore a pale green gown, and she came up out of it regally, white and gold. I was so proud that I blushed when anyone spoke of her. After dinner, she was standing by her deck chair, talking to her husband, when people began to go below for the concert. She took up a long cloak and attempted to put it on. The wind blew the light thing about, and Ebling chatted and smiled his public smile while she struggled with it. Suddenly his roving eye caught sight of the Chicago girl who was having a similar difficulty with her draperies and he pranced half the length of the deck to assist her. I had been watching from the rail and when she was left alone I threw my cigar away and wrapped Mrs. Ebling up roughly. Don't go down, I begged. Stay up here. I want to talk to you. She hesitated a moment and looked at me thoughtfully. Then, with a sigh, she sat down. Everyone hurried down to the saloon, and we were absolutely alone at last, behind the shelter of the stern, with the thick darkness all about us and a warm east wind rushing over the sea. I was too sore and angry to think. I leaned toward her, holding the arm of her chair with both hands, and began anywhere. You remember those two blue coasts out of Gibraltar. It should be either one you choose if you will come with me. I have not much money, but we shall get on somehow. There has got to be an end of this. We are neither one of us cowards, and this is humiliating, intolerable. She sat looking down at her hands, and I pulled her chair impatiently towards me. I felt, she said at last, "'that you were going to say something like this. "'You are sorry for me, and I don't wish to be pitied. "'You think Ebling neglects me, but you are mistaken. "'He has had his disappointments, too. "'He wants children and a gay hospitable house, "'and he is tied to a sick woman who cannot get on with people. "'He has more to complain of than I have, and yet he bears with me. "'I am grateful to him, and there is no more to be said.' "'Oh, isn't there?' I cried. "'And I?' "'She laid her hand entreatingly upon my arm. "'Ah, you. "'You. Don't ask me to talk about that. "'You.' "'Her fingers slipped down my coat sleeve to my hand and twisted it. "'I caught her two hands and held them, "'telling her I would never let them go. "'And you meant to leave me day after tomorrow.' To say goodbye to me, as you will to the other people on this boat, you meant to cut me adrift like this, with my heart on fire and all my life unspent in me. She sighed despondently. I am willing to suffer whatever I must suffer, to have had you. She answered simply. I was ill, and so lonely, and it came so quickly and quietly. "'Don't begrudge it to me. "'Do not leave me in bitterness. "'If I have been wrong, forgive me.' "'She bowed her head and pressed my fingers entreatingly. "'A warm tear splashed on my hand. "'It occurred to me that she bore my anger "'as she bore little Karen's importunities, "'as she bore Ebling. "'What a circle of pettiness she had around her. "'I fell back in my chair and my hands dropped at my side.' I felt like a creature, its back broken. I asked her what she wished me to do. Don't ask me, she whispered. There is nothing that we can do. I thought you knew that. You forget that, that I am too ill to begin my life over. Even if there were nothing else in the way, that would be enough. And that is what has made it all possible. Our loving each other, I mean. If I were well, we couldn't have even had this much. Don't reproach me. Hasn't it been at all pleasant to you to find me waiting for you every morning, to feel me thinking of you when you went to sleep? Every night I have watched the sea for you as if it were mine and I had made it, and I have listened to the water rushing by you full of sleep and youth and hope. And everything you had said or done during the day came back to me, and when I went to sleep it was only to feel you more. You see, there was never anyone else. I have never thought of anyone in the dark but you. She spoke pleadingly, and her voice had sunk so low that I could barely hear her. And yet you will do nothing, I groaned. You will dare nothing. You will give me nothing. Don't say that. When I leave you day after tomorrow, I shall have given you all my life. I can't tell you how. But it is true, there is something in each of us that does not belong to the family or to society, not even to ourselves. Sometimes it is given in marriage, and sometimes it is given in love, but oftener it is never given at all. We have nothing to do with giving or withholding it. It is a wild thing that sings in us once and flies away and never comes back. And mine is flown to you. "'When one loves like that, it is enough somehow. "'The other things can go if they must. "'That is why I can live without you and die without you.' "'I caught her hands and looked into her eyes "'that shone warm in the darkness. "'She shivered and whispered in a tone so different "'from any I have ever heard from her before or afterward. "'Do you grudge it to me? "'You are so young and strong.' and you have everything before you. I shall have only a little while to want you in, and I could want you forever and not weary. I kissed her hair, her cheeks, her lips, until her head fell forward on my shoulder, and she put my face away with her soft, trembling fingers. She took my hand and held it close to her, in both her own. We sat silent, "'and the moments came and went, "'bringing us closer and closer, "'and the wind and water rushed by us, "'obliterating our tomorrows and all our yesterdays. "'The next day Mrs. Ebling kept her cabin, "'and I sat stupidly by her chair until dark "'with the rugged little girl to keep me company "'and an occasional nod from the engineer. "'I saw Mrs. Ebling again only for a few moments.' "'when we were coming into the New York Harbor. "'She wore a street dress and a hat, "'and these alone would have made her seem far away from me. "'She was very pale and looked down when she spoke to me "'as if she had been guilty of a wrong toward me. "'I have never been able to remember that interview "'without heartache and shame. "'But then I was too desperate to care about anything. "'I stood like a wooden post, and let her approach me, let her speak to me, let her leave me. She came up to me as if it were a hard thing to do and held out a little package timidly and her gloved hand shook as if she were afraid of me. I want to give you something, she said. You will not want it now, so I shall ask you to keep it until you hear from me. You gave me your address a long time ago when you were making that drawing. Someday I shall write to you and ask you to open this. You must not come to tell me goodbye this morning. But I shall be watching you when you go ashore. Please don't forget. I took the little box mechanically and thanked her. I think my eyes must have filled. For she uttered an exclamation of pity touched my sleeve quickly, and left me. It was one of those strange, low, musical exclamations, which meant everything and nothing. Like the one that had thrilled me that night at Naples, and it was the last sound I ever heard from her lips. An hour later I went on shore, one of those who crowded over the gangplank the moment it was lowered. For the next afternoon, I wandered back to the docks and went on board the Germania. I asked for the engineer, and he came up in his shirt sleeves from the engine room. He was red and disheveled, angry and voluble. His bright eye had a hard glint, and I did not once see his masterful smile. When he heard my inquiry, he became profane. Mrs. Ebling had sailed for Bremen on the Hobenstaufen that morning at eleven o'clock. She had decided to return by the northern route and pay a visit to her father in Finnmark. She was in no condition to travel alone, he said. He evidently smarted on her extravagance. But who, he asked, with a blow of his fist on the rail, could stand between a woman and her whim? She had always been a willful girl, and she had a doting father behind her. When she set her head with the wind, there was no holding her. She ought to have married the Arctic Ocean. I think Ebling was still talking when I walked away. I spent that winter in New York. My consular appointment hung fire. Indeed, I did not pursue it with much enthusiasm. And I had a good many idle hours in which to think of Mrs. Ebling. She had never mentioned the name of her father's village, and somehow I could never quite bring myself to... Go to the docks when Ebling's boat was in and ask for news of her. More than once, I made up my mind definitely to go to Finnmark and take my chance at finding her. The shipping people would know where Ebling came from. But I never went. I've often wondered why. When my resolve was made and my courage high, when I could almost feel myself approaching her, suddenly everything crumbled under me and I fell back as if I had done that night when I dropped her hands after telling her only a moment before that I would never let them go. In the twilight of a wet March day, when the gutters were running black outside and the square was liquefying under crusts of dirty snow, the housekeeper brought me a damp letter which bore a blurred foreign postmark. It was from Niels Tanstad, who wrote that it was his sad duty to inform me that his daughter, Alexandra Ebling, and died on the second day of February in the twenty-sixth year of her age. Complying with her request, he enclosed a letter which she had written some days before her death. I at last brought myself to break the seal of the second letter. It read thus, My friend, you may open now the little package I gave you. May I ask you to keep it? I gave it to you because there was no one else who would care about it in just that way. Ever since I left you, I have been thinking what it would be like to live a lifetime caring and being cared for like that. It was not the life I was meant to live, and yet, in a way, I have been living it ever since I first knew you. Of course, you understand now why I could not go with you. I would have spoiled your life for you. Besides that, I was ill, and I was too proud to give you the shadow of myself. I had much to give you, if you had come earlier. As it was, I was ashamed. Vanity sometimes saves us when nothing else will, and mine saved you. Thank you for everything. I hold this to my heart, where I once held your hand, Alexandra. The dusk had thickened in the night long before I got up from my chair and took the little box from its place in my desk drawer. I opened it and lifted out a thick coil, cut from where her hair grew thickest and brightest. It was tied firmly at one end, and when it fell over my arm, it curled and clung about my sleeve, like a living thing set free. How it gleamed! How it still gleams in the firelight! It was warm and softly scented under my lips, and stirred under my breath like seaweed in the tide. This, and a withered magnolia flower, and two pink seashells, nothing more. And it was all twenty years ago. We are always on the hunt for great stories like this one to feature on the podcast. If you know of any, send your suggestions to bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel full of stories from the show. Go to tiny.cc slash Bedtime. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a Buy Me A Coffee link on every page and post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>